morning. Can you all hear me? Oh, that's better. Thank you, Brother John, for reading the scriptures there for us. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm not going to expound on that passage. That's not, uh, if you were here last week, you know that that's not the purpose of the message. But, but I thought this was a, a good passage to, to just, uh, you know, uh, to, to read through. And uh, I, I'll just spend a minute, pick up a couple of points on there. And this is, of course, a very fascinating uh, incident that happens uh, when the risen Christ is traveling and we get we see two of his disciples. They were not disciples as in among the 12, but, but there were other disciples. Jesus had many other disciples besides the 12. Uh, the 12 were the apostles and then there were many more that were followers of, of his. And here we see that they're traveling on the road and... Uh, and Jesus walks along with them and, uh, and they have this fascinating conversation. I just want to pick up a couple of things that the Lord says, you know, and they're telling him about all these things that have happened, which is quite ironic because, you know, they're talking about Jesus. And it says there that, um, you know, that, uh, uh, that the Lord had, uh, had closed their eyes, right? They did not, their eyes were, verse 16 said, their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. So there's definitely something physically that God had done to, prevent them from knowing this was Jesus. I don't know why that is. Even even Mary, you know, earlier who met him, uh, you know, outside the tomb, uh, couldn't recognize uh, Jesus immediately when she, when she, when she saw him. Uh, but, but their eyes were, there was something going on there. And later on, we find out their eyes were open and they realize that they've been talking or conversing with the Lord. And, and they explain all these things to them. And then, and then um, you know, I'm, I'm struck by Jesus' response. You know, in verse 25, he says, uh, oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself you know we we're starting this um, the series we have started the series that we're calling the whole counsel of God right the whole counsel of God and that's about the scriptures it's about studying the scriptures and I'm reminded of this this uh, this uh, uh, you know set of statements by the Lord Jesus where he says that uh, you know where he begins at Moses and all the prophets that is going back to the when he talks about Moses he's not talking about Moses as a person but he's talking about the Pentateuch which we covered last week uh, at a high level he's talking about the first five books and then all the prophets right which we'll talk about today Right, uh, he expounded to them in all the scriptures. That was the scriptures they had at the time. The things concerning himself, and he's saying, you know, all of these things were about about himself. They didn't know that he was talking about him, but it was about the Messiah. And he says that you know the Christ was supposed to suffer. Don't you realize that that this person you're talking about, to whom all of these things have happened, that he died and he was given up by the leaders and he rose again. Don't you realize that this person is the Messiah? And he's trying to show them, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, from the scriptures. And, and that is something, you know, when we talked last week, we talked about one of the threads, right? The threads through scripture is, is about the story of Christ from the very beginning in Genesis 3 all the way through to the very end. You know, it starts there with Christ and then it ends with Christ ultimately on the throne, um, you know, in the, in the new heavens and the, and the new earth and the kingdom. And uh, um, and then it goes on, and uh, you know, and then they 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 meet with Jesus, and uh, 
then all of a sudden, you know, their eyes were open, right? Their eyes were open and they see that. And then uh, look at what they say here. They said, verse 32, uh, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? You know, that was the sensation they were having as he was opening the scriptures. And maybe that burning was related to the fact that this was the Lord, uh, although they didn't realize it at the time. And I was just thinking about, you know, what is our reaction to the scriptures, you know, because the scriptures are not uh, just any book. You know, we talked about it last last week, right? The uniqueness of the scriptures. It is something unique in all of history. It's something unique in all of literature. But beyond that, it's unique because it is the word of God. It is the message of God. It is God's uh, revealing himself to us. It's God revealing his plan of salvation to us. It's God revealing his uh, plan for the ages, for all of history to us. And, you know, we need to come to the scriptures and it needs to, when we study it, you know, our hearts need to burn within us. You know, it needs to burn within us. It needs to wake us up. You know, what happens when something is burning? You know, I, I, I eat some um, um, uh, flaxseed every morning, okay? It's part of my diet, so don't, don't ask. Uh, but it's, it's very difficult to eat flaxseed, so I sort of roast it a little bit and put some salt and uh, put a little bit of oil and I leave it on a little pan there. And after a little while, you know, they start popping. You know, as they start getting burned, they start popping up and down. And sometimes they pop and they land on my feet and they burn. You know, I can feel that sting. Okay, that's what needs to happen when our, when our hearts are burning within us. We need to bubble over. We need to pop up, you know, and it needs to reflect itself in our lives. And that's, that's what it needs to be. But, you know, sadly, as we talked about last week, you know, not only do we not know the scriptures, but... You know, we don't know how it all fits together. You know, we don't um, even spend time in the scriptures. You know, a lot of our, lot, many portions of our Bible are gathering dust. You know, we only read the Gospels or we read this or that. Uh, you know, or we just read devotions. You know, when I talk to a lot of young people, you know, what's your quiet time? Like, well, are you a devotion? Nothing wrong with a devotion. Devotions have their place, but we need to go back to the word of God. And that's what we've been doing here, you know. Uh, James 1.21 says that we are to receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls, the implanted word that is, that is able to make you a different person, that is able to change you from the inside. You know, our theme for the camp in a couple of weeks is be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And that transformation is not just, you know, something that happens automatically where, uh, yes, we are a new creation as Jobin reminded us, but what that new creation does, it gives us the spirit of God, but we still need to go and spend time in the word. It's when we spend time in the word that, you know, God doesn't just flip his finger there and all of a sudden you are, you are transformed, you know, in terms of your, you know, on this earth, but we have to transform our minds, our, our renew our minds and be transformed, okay, uh, by studying scripture right, by going back to scripture, and that's really what we're going to do, and I'm really excited about this, uh, you know, over the next uh, year, a little more than a year, about 15 months, and we talked last week about, uh, you know, about the, um, the, 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 the sort of 10,000 foot or 20,000, whatever, 30,000, uh, we'll go with 30,000, because that's where the planes fly, okay, um, so these are the you know, we talked about the different sections of scripture and we've, we're sort of deep diving into each of them, right? So, so we, uh, we talked about the foundational books last week. And so before we get to that, just a quick recap here. You know, uh, the Bible has got six, six books, 39 
is what we call the Old Testament, 27 is the New Testament. And we sort of came up with this framework, right? This framework that, uh, that splits the books into three parts. One is the foundational part, which is the, uh, the, the, the foundational truths, okay, that God presents to man through the scriptures and which guide, you know, are to guide all of life, right? And we find that these foundational truths are reflected throughout scripture, all the way from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And then the historical books after that. And what this is, is simply, you know, the people here in the, in the Old Testament, the foundational truths are given to the, to the, um, the, the, the nation of Israel. And God is, um, uh, and, and then they go on and in the history, they start living it out, right? And we're going to go more into that this morning. So they start living it out and, and we see sometimes they live it out well, sometimes they don't live it out well. More often than not, they don't live it out well. Uh, and then there are some consequences related to that and those consequences are already outlined for them in the foundational parts of scripture where it says, if you obey me, this is what will happen and if you don't obey, then this is what will happen. And then we have a set of instructional books, uh, 22 books in the Old Testament and uh, these are basically, you know, uh, when the people are living in the history, they're trying to live out these foundational truths. You know, sometimes they do the right thing, sometimes they do the wrong thing. And these instructional books are there to instruct them, either to encourage them when they're doing the right thing or to correct them when they're doing the wrong thing, right? And then um, same thing in the, in the New Testament, right? And we're going to deep dive into both of these sections and finish up the Old Testament today. And then, um, you know, in the New Testament, again, we have the foundational books, the, the, the four Gospels, which present sort of what the Christ life is supposed to be, what the, the life of a Christian, life of a follower of Christ is supposed to be. And, and, and again, it's sort of a picking up on these foundational truths from the Old Testament and building on them. And Jesus sort of gives them a new twist, right? And the new twist is it's no longer a law that's written on tablets uh, of stone, but rather it's a law that's written on our hearts. And he takes it a step further. Uh, he says what it really means. And he talks about the fact that it's a transformation of the heart, okay, that goes far beyond the letter of the law. Because when Jesus came into the world, at that point in time, the people had become very legalistic. Right? It was all about just obeying the letter of the law and they made all these thousands of pages of rules that take one little commandment in, in, in Leviticus or uh, you know, Deuteronomy and they would expand that into hundreds of rules that they had to follow. And Jesus said, no, it's not about that. It's about your heart. You know, they said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And he says, you know, uh, I say to you that if you look on a woman with lust, in your heart, you have committed adultery. He's saying you need to change your heart. And that's where he takes the foundational truths from here and, and he puts it into a new perspective. And then in the historical book of Acts, we find where the church, you know, is starting to live that out in history, right? Uh, and then again, the instructional book, or we call them the epistles or the letters, um, you know, and, uh, and they basically uh, help us to... Um, uh, to, uh, to, to understand how we are to live. So as we are living in the history, you know, we face challenges. They run into problems as the church is, is as Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. And, and, and he, and he uh, created the church there. He started the church. And then as they tried to live out, um, uh, you know, the church life, they start running into issues. There were issues of false doctrines and there were issues of people bringing in the old Jewish practices. There were issues of, of um, you know, fights among the, among the, um, among the, um, the, the people in the church. We have all of those things today, don't we? And so 
you know, God provides these instructional books, these letters that speak into, and that's what these arrows reflect, right? Both of them, they speak the history, historical part is living out the foundational truths, the instructional part are, are instructing the people in the history on how they are to correct themselves or how, or encouraging them to do the things where they are on the right track. And so this is sort of a big, you know, 30,000 foot level and for me itself studying this has been really exciting okay? because um, you know it really puts things into perspective and, and we're going to get more into into it today um, you know it, it helps us to really see uh, um, you know how these things fit together and the purpose of this is not the last week and this week we're not doing exhaustive study it's to give you this framework the idea is that you will go and you will study you know and then the, your heart will burn you know, when you study the scriptures. Of course, over the next few weeks, we're gonna start deep diving. I'll talk about that a little later. We will pick, okay? Uh, now in a year, we cannot get too deep into every single book, but, but we'll start taking some topics from within the foundational, within the historical, within the instruction, and then I'll come back and I'll deep dive a little bit into those three in the New Testament, and then we'll do the same, okay, over the next 15 months or so. I'm really excited, and uh, you know, I was talking with, uh, with, uh, with our elder Charles Matthew, Yesterday, uh, we were just exchanging messages about, about what a great study this is. And, and by the way, several of you have messaged me after last week saying how excited you are about this. And, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm really glad to see that. But let's keep that, that heat going, okay? Let's keep that fire going, right? Let's not just give up. Um, and, and I hope that continues. And this will really transform us. But back to my story. So Charlie was telling me that he studied this thing for the first time. And by the way, uh, this is this uh, this framework is uh, is there and on a website called biblicaltraining.org. Okay, you can actually go in and sign up for free and do sort of like a course. There are videos that you can watch. There are notes, uh, and we are going to be carrying this forward into our cell groups starting from next week. Some of them already started uh, this week. Uh, so we're going to make this a comprehensive teaching program. But Charlie was telling me that um, you know when he first saw this. Uh, and I don't know, Charlie, how many years ago that was, uh, but he said it was like a eureka moment for him, okay? It was a eureka moment, and, and he just jumped up for joy. You know, hopefully he didn't do what the, the original eureka guy did, um, but uh, you can Google that if you don't understand the joke. Uh, but nevertheless, he, it was enlightening for him, and he said that a lot of things that, that, uh, that never made sense before all of a sudden made sense to him, right? And that's what this does, right? When you can start seeing how these instructional books fit into the history, when you can see how the historical, the incidents that you find in the history uh, relate to the foundational truths, you really start being able to understand what's going on and you start being able to connect the dots, okay? Uh, and that's really what we're trying to do here. So last week, uh, I did uh, talk about, uh, am I hitting the right button, Kevin? Ah, there we go. So we, we did a deep dive into, the, um, uh, into the, the foundational books, which are the five books, and I'm not going to go into this, and, and let me just explain maybe what are some of these things that I've given here, right? So we talked about the culture within the larger culture, the people are called to, to form a, a, a subculture which is very different than the larger culture. We talked about how there's a lot of creative stuff going on in this foundational section, a lot of creative, a lot of new things being introduced into the world. And then uh, we talked about character, right? And, uh, and then we talked about some of the key characters and I gave some phrases 
regarding them and then the key themes. And the reason for giving this is just for you to have some pegs to sort of hang your thoughts as you go through. And I would encourage you as you study to just take a look at each of these. Maybe you can keep a little notebook or a digital notebook where you put these, these, uh, these themes down. And as you study through Genesis, you know, note down what you see about creation. As you go through Exodus and Leviticus and the, and the kings and other places, note down where you see judgment. Where do you see uh, evidences of redemption? Right? Where do you see leaders? What kind of leaders are they? Are they good leaders? Are they bad leaders? We're going to study a lot about leaders today. Covenants, right? Where do you see covenants? You see so many covenants in the first, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, right? There's the uh, Adamic covenant, there's the uh, Noahic covenant, there's the Abrahamic covenant, right? There's the Mosaic covenant when you come into Exodus, and there's the Davidic covenant later on, and then of course, ultimate fulfillment in the new covenant uh, of Christ, right? And then we, uh, we talked about the, the five books and some two, two key words that define these books. So the book of Genesis is beginnings and generations, right? Exodus is about slavery, you know, how the people get into slavery and how they are redeemed out of slavery, right? Uh, and that is a picture of our own salvation and the work of Christ. And of course, we see a lot of symbolism there, right? You have the Passover lamb, which is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can start seeing how these things connect. Like it's not just some ritual that they did. We come to Leviticus, we have rituals and relationship. And the rituals are how they relate to God, right? And relationship is about the laws around their relationship to each other, okay? Um, Numbers, failure and fulfillment. Here we have the people, and I'm, I'm actually reading through the book of Numbers right now in my, in my personal study. And it's really fascinating how they come, you know, and, and they're ready to go into the promised land. They've traveled all the way from Egypt. They've defeated Pharaoh and God has given them all this, the manna and all these things. And they're about to go into the promised land and they fail. Right? They come there and they send the spies out and you know the story other than Joshua and Caleb. All of them said, wow, this, you know, we can't do this. You know, their, their faith uh, is not quite there. We can't do this. We've, there are giants. You know, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. And so what happens? They fail. And God sends them around, you know, on a 40-year journey, wandering around in the wilderness. They have to pick up the tabernacle and pack it up and move it and then set it up again. And, and, and they're just wandering around. And that whole generation dies out. And then they come back, right? That's what, it's beautiful there, right? They fail, but then ultimately it gets fulfilled. They come back. And they're back there at the border of that promised land. And they're looking in and, and what, what changed? Did anything change? The giants were still there. The walled cities were still there. They were still like grasshoppers. But this time they say, yes, we will go forward. You know, what has changed is that experience of the journey. And we looked at how, how this connects with our own lives, you know, and how God takes us through these journeys. What? Not to change our circumstances, but to change us. To change us and make us ready to take that next step you know, towards that, that promised rest. Uh, and then Deuteronomy, you know, now we've got a whole new generation, law and land. You know, we've got a whole new generation that wasn't there when the law was given in Exodus. And so Moses has to reiterate that and tell them and then how they're going to divide up the land and all these kind of things. So those, those are just, so as you go through, these are just little things, as I said, to, to hang your thoughts on, you know, think about what are the beginnings I'm seeing? What do I see about the generations? What do I see about slavery and redemption? And uh, I would encourage you to go back. You can look at the recording. We have this whole message from last week recorded, okay, on, uh, on our YouTube channel. Just Google Calvary Bible Fellowship YouTube. That's how I find it. Uh, there might be an easier way, but um, I'm not the most sophisticated uh, online person here. 
um, and I'm able to find it. I found it last week. So please go and listen to it. Okay, listen to it so that you can just revise uh, this. So with that, we are going to come into the next section here and we are going to, uh, you know, go from the foundational book into the historical, okay? So the historical books uh, and then after that, we are going to go into the instructional, which has poetic and prophetic. And, um, you know, we are going to just... Uh, uh, deep dive into this last, like we did, uh, like we did uh, um, last week. Okay, um, and um, yeah, let me just get to my right spot in my notes here. Yeah, so the the historical section is is again, you know, every one of these sections is important. But uh, I just want to read a quote here from from a, a teacher named David Howard, and I'll just read it because it's a very nice quote. And it says, the Old Testament historical books contain much more than delightful, strange stories. Now, now um, I want to just pause there. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was talking to my, uh, to my kids uh, yesterday, and, and he's saying, you know, uh, you know I, love, I love Sunday school, and I love all those stories and how we learned all those choruses. But, but you know, it's very unfortunate that, that all we ever know about much of the Old Testament is those sort of somewhat silly songs that we learnt, you know? They're not silly, but you know what I mean, you know? Um, you know, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, right? And uh, what's, what's another one? I mean, Jonah and the whale and, you know, five little stones went in the sling and the sling went round and round. Is that what that story is about? Not really, there's much more there, right? But, but many of us, you know, the only thing we remember about the Old Testament is those, those uh, nice little songs and little stories about David and Goliath and all. There are Sunday school teachers. And don't get me wrong, I love the Sunday school and the teachers do a wonderful job. And that's a great way to build the, the, the baseline of, of biblical knowledge. But, you know, if that's all we know about the Old Testament, that we are missing uh, so much, right? And that's what this, this uh, author here says. He says, they contain much more than delightful, strange stories. They are an important depository of God's revelation of himself in the details of the stories, as well as at the higher levels of group of stories. I mean, just think about that, that walking around the walls of Jericho. Can you imagine that when you understand that that came after the failure, right? Okay the failure in the early part of numbers, it takes on so much significance. I mean, here are a bunch of people and they see this big walled city and, and, and they, you know, in faith, they go and start marching around expecting the walls to fall down. I mean, uh, what an amazing story of faith. And, and it puts it into more perspective. You know, the amazing is not that the walls fell down. It's that these people actually believed in doing and they obeyed what God commanded them to do as ridiculous as that might have sounded from a human perspective and especially coming after that failure that happens at the beginning of the numbers it takes on so much more significance about the growth in their faith right we see great things I'm going back to the quote here we see great things unfolding things that tell us about God and his love for his people in the world his holiness his worthiness and his unfolding plans for his people um, uh, and the world. In the end, these things are much more important than the fortunes or foibles of individual characters. These larger themes bring the Old Testament historical books into the proper focus and into harmony with the other books of the Bible. And so I think it's important as we go through this to keep connecting it back to the foundational thing, keep connecting it to the the thread of, of history as we see it and understand, you know, what is God trying to reveal about himself through this? What is God trying to reveal to us about, about us as human beings 
through these experiences that they go through. So before we go ahead, uh, and by the way, we are not having a second meeting today, so I will be taking extra time, okay? Don't, don't, don't look at your watches for a while, all right? Um, so uh, I, I just want to talk a little bit about timeline because this, this um, Old Testament is covering a long period of time, okay? Um, uh, I don't know what's going on. Kevin, can you hit the, the button for me? Yeah, thank you. So, so just to give you a little bit of a, of a sense of this, uh, so if you just go with Abraham, you know, uh, Abraham was roughly around 2000 BC. This is, this is just very, very rough, okay? It's rounded up numbers here just to make it easier. And then Moses shows up around 1500 BC, David around 1000, Ezra, which is the return from the exile, we'll talk about that a little later, around 500 BC. And then Malachi, who is the last prophet in the Old Testament, <coughs> around 430, and then we saw after that, they had 400 years of silent time, which we'll look at a little later, maybe halfway through the year. Uh, and then, you know, the Lord comes and we get into the New Testament, right? So this gives you a sense that we're going almost 1600 years over here. This is a vast, vast period of time, okay? And in fact, it goes even further back, right? Because you start with Adam and creation, which, uh, I don't know, so there might be another... I don't know, 6,000 years or something in there. I don't want to get into the controversy of how old the earth is um, or when, <coughs> you know, when Adam was created. Uh, we won't go there today. Uh, but there's a, there's a broad span of history. Now, when you come to the Old Testament, it's actually very compressed, okay? The entire Old Testament, the foundational books, the historical, the instructional, it's about a 100-year period, okay? It's from about, you know, uh, AD, very, very early on, uh, you know, after Christ's birth all the way down to about 100 years, about 100 AD. So it's a much more compressed period of time, but this is a much longer period of time, or more than a thousand, thousands of years versus, you know, tens of years, <coughs> adding up to 100 in the, old, in the New Testament. So um, just for you to keep that in mind. So we're going we're gonna to make some boxes, okay? So uh, you've probably gotten used to this now. We're going to have a lot of boxes in here. And by the way, uh, Ben uh, will be sending these out a little later uh, today or tomorrow. So you can, uh, you can look at it yourself. So you can see some boxes. And one thing you notice is they all have odd colors. That's not because I was uh, going crazy with colors. There's a reason for that. I'll come back to that later. But we're going to split this, the historical books into sort of, uh, you know, um, four areas, okay, or five areas, right? One, two, three, four, and five, all right? So, so what we're going to do is we're going to split it up based on uh, a few little things that happen in the history. So the first one is the, is the pre-Kings era, okay? So I'm going to just talk through this. This is from about 1400 to 1150 BC, okay, the pre-Kings era. And uh, uh, so this is the, you know, there's the initial leadership by Moses, which is then followed by Joshua, Right, so you see the key characters there are Joshua, and then the time of the judges, and then we have we have Ruth as well. We'll come back to to Ruth. So this period, um, you know, uh, you had the 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 right after Moses, you have Joshua. Right after Joshua, you have some other elders running the show among the people of Israel. They've settled in the land, and then you get into this period of judges, which was not a very good period for Israel. Right, um, so the leadership is very critical to spiritual health of the nation and the degree of success in living out those foundational principles was very much driven by the leadership they had uh, in those times. So when we look at the, the culture and the character, right, when the 
character of the leaders is not in sync or it is in sync with the character of God, then we find that the people do much better, right? When the leadership, uh, character of the leadership is not in sync with the character of God, then we find that <coughs> the bigger culture around them has influence on them. Remember that thing about the culture within a culture, right? So the bigger culture has a negative influence around them and you find all the idolatry and all of these things coming in. So we see here, we have Joshua, we have the judges, we have Ruth, and Ruth actually is not uh, advancing the story. The story of Ruth actually happens uh, during the time of the judges, okay? Historically, they're sort of parallel, um, you know. Uh, and, um, you know, so Joshua takes the people in the promised land. Moses is not allowed to go there. We were reminded of that this morning, um, uh, you know, that, uh, that Moses uh, sinned, right? Moses sinned. He went and struck the rock instead of speaking to it, and, and God... Uh, uh, doesn't allow him to enter the promised land. We saw he pleaded with God. So, uh, uh, you know, God uh, uh, is um, is gracious enough. Thank you, Joey. Uh, is to, to let him sort of see the promised land, right, from the mountain. But he says, this is it. You're not going to go into it. And Joshua is going to take them in, right? So Joshua leads them well. We have a good leader. The elders after Joshua, they also seem to lead them well, although we don't know much about them. But then, we find the judges, right? Uh, we find the judges who have a wide range of character. You have some good characters, some not so good characters. You have characters in the middle. And, uh, and the people start drifting away from God, right? And there's a, there's a common phrase that we find throughout the book of Judges. In fact, the very last verse of Judges ends this way where it says, every person did what was right in their own eyes, okay? Not in the eyes of God, but they did what was right in their... So it was like an... It became an anything goes kind of culture, right? And then we see Ruth coming in there. And again, we see the grace of God. Here, all of a sudden, you know, in the story, we see this, 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 uh, this woman, okay? A person from, not from the Israelite culture. She wasn't a Jew. She was a Moabitess, right? And she exhibits the character that God expects. And Ruth is all about love. It's about servanthood. It's about faith. These are all things that were lacking in the children of Israel. And so, you know, when you understand that, you see the significance of Ruth. It's not just a story about Ruth and Orpah and Naomi and, and all these things. It's actually a, a way to show in the story of what it takes, you know, what, what does uh, a God-fearing life looks li look like, right? And, uh, uh, you know, and, and God has to uh, amazingly use somebody that's totally outside of the culture, a person who, who was worshipping idols, you know, and show what that looks like to convict his people and then God blesses Ruth, right? Uh, she becomes a great grandmother to David from whom the Messiah comes. So here we see that Messiah thread going on, right? You know, that started back in, in Genesis in the foundational section and, and God calls this lady out from a different culture, puts her into this culture, she follows God and she becomes the uh, great grandmother of David from whom the the Messiah comes later. So and it shows us that even in wicked times, God has his people. He has his remnant. You know, when, when later on, when, when uh, you know, Elijah says that I'm the only one left, okay? I can never remember if it was Elijah or Elisha, one of them, okay? One of the E prophets, right? Um, you know, he says, I'm the only one left. And God says, no, there are, there are, there's a remnant that hasn't bowed the knee to Baal. There's always a remnant. So that's the period of the pre-kings, okay? So then we come to... Uh, the kings, and we call this the, the king's united period. Okay, so this is a period where the characters are Samuel, Saul, uh, David, and Solomon. Um, and this is from about 1150 to, <coughs> to about 970. 
So Samuel uh, is a bridge. Okay, so Samuel is sort of bridging the period from the time of the judges down to the time of the kings. He was not really a king, right? Um, and uh, and you know Samuel comes on the scene and things begin to turn, right? Things begin to get a little better. Uh, the sacrifices are going again, uh, and and then the people come and they want a king, right? They can't. Things are not going well with the judges, so they come and ask for a king. And Samuel, of course, anoints Saul as a king. He rules for 40 years and later David, and he's succeeded by his son Solomon. So this is where Israel, this is sort of the glory, the glory period of Israel. Okay, it's, it's one nation, you know, with the 12 tribes. And, uh, you know, David fights a lot of wars. He consolidates the, the geographic region, and they're at peace. And Solomon, you know, of course, the wisest man on earth, and he had so many riches, and he built it up, and it was, uh, it was a great time uh, in the life of Israel. So that's the history there. And then we come to uh, something that happens there, which is after the time of Solomon. And even during the time of Solomon, we find that things start getting out of, out of whack. Okay? So uh, there's conflict that leads to a split. And we have, we have uh, Solomon starts going away from the Lord, right? Um, you know, he starts going away from the Lord uh, and uh, does all kinds of wicked things. We'll come back to that uh, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes here. And, and there's conflict and that there's a family conflict, okay? And it splits the kingdom up, right? So it's divided into Israel and Judah, right? There's Israel and then there's Judah on the other side. I guess I'll come back to Judah. So Judah is the ten, uh, two tribes and then uh, Israel is the 10 tribes. And, and you have these 19 kings, okay? And there are 19 kings in there and none of them are described as good. Now there's one guy in there that, um, that, uh, that he sort of starts out bad and later becomes good or maybe, yeah, he starts out bad and later becomes good. Um, you know, but nevertheless on the whole, there's not much good to say about them, okay? Uh, there was also Jehu who sort of started out decent but then very quickly ended up being bad um, and so um, you know we find that uh, yeah 19 kings all uh, all all bad in Israel uh, and then um, and then finally what God does is he brings judgment okay he brings judgment on can you hit the key oh, there you go judgment on 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 the northern kingdom of Israel in the year 722 BC Okay, and this nation called Assyria, all right, who we read about a lot in scripture, they were very wicked people, very, very cruel people. Uh, God sends them, they were the empire of the time, and they take the children of Israel and they scatter them. Okay, so Assyria, the way that Assyrians worked was that they would come, they would capture a country, and they wouldn't let you stay there, they wouldn't like rule over you there, but they just took all the people there and they just, you know, spread them out to the to the wind, you know, to other parts of their kingdom. And in fact, they even went to those parts of the other parts of the kingdom and brought people in. So you, you know about the Samaritans, right? The Samaritan woman that Jesus talked to, right? Those were basically people who were not Jewish who came from some other part of the Assyrian kingdom and were transported. In fact, there's a very, uh, very funny story. You can go look it up where these people come in and the, the lions start eating them up, you know, because they're not doing the right sacrifices. And then the Assyrian king sends some prophets, some uh, priests or somebody there to train them in how to do the rituals. Okay, interesting stuff. You can, now you, when you go read that, you can sort of relate to what's going on there, right? So, and, and, and interestingly, what happens here is that they're not taken captive, but they're just scattered, okay? So I don't know if you've heard about in history, this concept of the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Okay, if you want to know more about them, you can ask Brother John Verghese. He's a 
he's an expert on this topic. Uh, he and I were exchanging some notes yesterday on it. Uh, but the 10 lost tribes, they were just scattered all over the world. And, and some of them are actually here in India. Okay, you go to Manipur, there's a whole group of Jews. There's some in Cochin, there's some all over. And, and now they're in the process of, some of them are in the process of returning. Right? They have been for ever since the, the formation of the state of Israel in 1948. Uh, but they're just scattered and they go away and, and they never come back into the land. Maybe individuals, maybe families come back, but, but you don't read about them again. Okay, these 10 tribes, all right, they're gone. So meanwhile, on the other side, the other part of the kingdom divided was the southern kingdom of, uh, known as Judah. So this was originally one tribe, but then gradually the tribe of Benjamin joined in and it became two tribes. And here we see that they have um, um, uh, 19 uh, kings and one queen. So there are 20 here, okay? Uh, that one queen, Ataliah, that's a, a very evil qu queen. And we actually read about them that eight of them, they're actually good. So whereas Israel, they were all bad, okay? Uh, in, in Judah, you know, eight of them are turned, termed as good. Two of them start out good and end up bad. And uh, uh, there's uh, one, which is Manasseh, who was the worst of the worst, okay, of the kings. He was very bad, but then he sort of turns around at the end and he becomes good, okay? But, um, uh, but very fascinating stories, okay? And, and when, when a good leader comes, there's a, there's a little bit of revival. You know, they go back and they start implementing the foundational things. You know, they, they lose the book of the law and Josiah comes and they find the king Josiah and they find the book of the law and, and, and he tears his clothes saying, oh my goodness, you know, how could we have lost this, right? And then there's revival of the temple uh, rituals and things like that. So we see them sort of coming back, but then we keep reading that, but the high places were still there, okay? High places of the pagan sort of altars where they, um, you know, worship to the pagan gods, right? They didn't totally get removed. So there's a little bit of revival, then some bad king comes and they, and they go away, right? So good leaders bring about a measure of revival. And what happens is that Judah actually ends up being there much longer. So you can see Israel goes into captivity in 722. Judah actually ends up going captivity around 600, this somewhere between 605 and 586. There's, uh, there's multi, um, you know, multiple uh, stages of that, that, um, that judgment or that captivity or exile that happens. Uh, but we see that they also get judged, right? Finally, God make, meets out judgment because of the sins of the people. Uh, and, and this goes back to the foundational uh, part, right? Where he says that if you obey me, you know, if you do this and this and this and this, I will bless you. And if you don't do this and this and this and this, then I will curse you. I will make you a captive. I will, you will be overrun by other nations and I will give you over to them, right? And that's exactly what happens. And, and when you go through this, you can relate it back to that, right? So they end up go, be, uh, being captive. By then, you know, Assyria, the empire of that time, had been defeated by Babylon, okay? Babylon had overrun them and Babylon came and took them over. Now, Babylon was a very different, had a very different approach, okay? Both of them, both Assyria and Babylon, the reason they did what they did was that they didn't want uh, to have problems in these, uh, in these lands that they conquered, right? I mean, you can imagine if somebody comes and conquers your land and, and you keep all the people there, then, uh, you know, the, they can get together and have terrorism and, uh, you know, insurrections and all those kind of things going on. So what they would do, the Assyrians did, they just took them and you know, scattered them all over the, spread these people out so that they can't cause any problems in, in Israel, right? Babylon did something different. They actually took the leaders, okay? They took the leaders and they took them back to Babylon 
and they put them through a brainwashing program. Okay, you remember Daniel and his friends? And what does it say about, well, how does Daniel start? Right, Daniel starts, it says that they took the princes, right? The, the really smart people, right? Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel, and, and some 70 of them. And they took them there, and they put them through this three-year training program, right? It was actually a three-year training program, you know? Master of Babylonian Arts, MBA, okay? Put them through this training program to, to change their thinking, okay? And they even gave them positions in their kingdom. And that was their way of making sure that, you know, once you take the leaders, then, you know, you don't have to worry about the people, right? So, so that's how Daniel and all these people, they end up going, they actually go into exile, right? They go into exile, but, but look at this, you know, eventually... Kevin, they end up coming back, okay? And so we get to the last section there, which is, which is the return, okay? From 530, so they're therefore from 600 to 530, about 70 years, they're captive, right? They're captive in the land of Babylon. And what happens during that time, notice that the kingdom has changed, right? So you remember the Belshazzar, right? He's, fe he's feasting, and then what happens at night? Cyrus the Persian comes in and, and Babylon falls, right? Babylon falls uh, and Persian take one. Persia, uh, again, has a very different approach. Persia is actually a more compassionate kingdom and, and they actually, the Persian kings, the Cyrus and uh, Artaxerxes and, and others, they, they support the return of the people and so they return under, you know, Zerubbabel, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, and then the story of Esther also falls in this section, right? The story of Esther is, is, is uh, time-wise around the time of, uh, the same time as the history of, of Ezra, right? And so, so Zerubbabel comes back uh, in the first uh, return, first group of people that return. He rebuilds a temple, um, you know, uh, and then Ezra comes back in the second group and he teaches the people and they restore the temple worship and then Nehemiah comes back in the third group and he rebuilds the walls uh, around Jerusalem uh, and, uh, and all of these, these men, they become instruments and Esther, you know, men and a women, a woman become, you know, Esther does what she has to do. She, she um, you know, she puts her own life at risk to, to save the people of the, the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom from annihilation and they become God's instruments even willing to give their lives, right? And we see here that, that you know, Judah, you know, sorry, Israel never comes back, okay? Uh, whereas Judah comes back into the land and that's all recorded in scripture. Now, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Yeah, that's the line of the Messiah, right? So God had to have that throne of David there and the Messiah had to come from the tribe of Judah, right? So, so even all of these things, in fact, you know, when, when the, the kingdom splits, you know, Judah, Rehoboam, who's the king there, uh, I could go on and on, by the way. I might go two hours today, sorry. Uh, this is all exciting stuff. Um, uh, you know, don't worry. <laughs> uh, so Rehoboam, he prepares for war, okay? He prepares to go to war with Jeroboam, sorry. Uh, yeah, Jeroboam is the northern kingdom, uh, the first king there in the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. And he's going to go to war, and, um, and, and God stops him, okay? He sends a prophet and says, no, this is part of my plan, okay? Um, so the fact that it was just Judah here, right? It's to preserve the messianic line, right? So all of this happens, go back to the foundational, right? The Messiah is promised, right? Uh, from the tribe of Judah, right? You look at the, the, um, the, 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 um, the promise that, uh, the blessing that Jacob, you know, in Genesis, you'll find the promise that Jacob gives to uh, Judah, right? His son, he blesses all his children, 
his sons, right? And he says, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, right? Judah was where the king, the Messiah was going to come from. So, so they return back and, uh, uh, and are used by God. And, uh, you know, let me do one more thing here. I just want to fit all the books in, okay? So uh, this is where the color scheme comes in. So you see the, the blue there, okay? You'll see a blue box here. And you can see how the books fit in, okay? So Joshua, Judges, Ruth uh, are in the pre-Kings era, okay? Uh, first and Second Samuel, First Kings and First and Second Chronicles, okay? A part of Second Chronicles, the first few chapters are in the Kings United um, era, okay? And then uh, in the Kings Divided and the Judgment and Exile. So those, uh, th that's all of this part here, okay? There you got... Uh, part of 1st Kings and 2nd Kings, all of 2nd Chronicles, right? So that's where those fit in, right? So you want to read about what happened in the divided kingdom, you go to the latter part of 1st Kings, all of 2nd Kings, and then all of 2nd Chronicles. And then the return is the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And I think this is just very powerful, right? When you start, because these are all sort of mishmash, and it, it spreads between, it sort of flips between Israel and between Judah. And if we are reading it just like, you know, without understanding this context, a lot of it doesn't make any sense. But now you can sort of relate the characters, you can, you can connect them together, you know where they are, right? What era are they in, right? Uh, you know, Joshua, Judges and Ruth uh, come in this pre-Kings era, right? And so on and so forth. So, so this is uh, really um, what, uh, what that's about. And, and I just want to maybe uh, close out this section with, uh, with one more thing, um, which, is, uh, which is the... Uh, uh, you know, when you look at the mentality of leadership that's practiced here, okay? So when you go to Joshua, you know, and, and I'm going to categorize this into us, me, and you, okay? So sometimes it's about us. It's about us, the whole group. Sometimes it's about me, and sometimes it's about you. That's somebody else, right? So you look at Joshua. Joshua was all about us. It's about the people, leading the people, doing what's good for the people, right? You come over to Judges, okay? And Judges is an era of me, me first, right? So it's all about what's good for me. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. They didn't care about the people. They didn't care about the foundational truths. Okay, they didn't care about any of that. They just cared about doing what was right for them. And occasionally there'll be some judge that comes up that cares for the people, but then they go back to the meism, right? You go look at Ruth. Okay, Ruth is all about you. It's your God. It's your people, right? It's... Um, uh, it's about Naomi and it's about uh, the, the, the God of Israel uh, and, and sacrifice and God honors her though she was not a Jew. Okay, you come to Saul, Saul was always about himself, right? Saul was not a very God, he never became a godly man, although he was head and shoulders above, above everybody and he was chosen and anointed, but he was always about me. Remember how you got jealous Right? You know, Saul has killed his thousands and David is 10,000. And what does he do? He spends the rest of his life trying to hunt down David and kill him. Right? It was all about him. He just couldn't handle his ego, couldn't handle it. Right? Um, and then uh, we go to David. And David, uh, you know, was not a perfect man, but mostly it was about us. Right? It was about the people. It was about the kingdom. Although occasionally he fell and we know all about that. Solomon was the flip, right? Solomon did some good things. It was about us to begin with, but then it all became about me, right? It became about, about, uh, about uh, and his problem was compromise, right? And go back, compromise with what? Okay, so, you know, if you go to the kings, you find uh, there's, a, there's a statement that says that Solomon, he went to the, uh, Egypt and he took a wife, right, of the daughter of Pharaoh and he accumulated horses and chariots. And, and, and if you're just reading the history, okay, you're thinking, oh, okay, he did that. 
all right? But you know, that is such a significant thing because it was a violation of some foundational truths there because in Deuteronomy, God says that when you have a king, okay, I don't want him to accumulate armies and I don't want him to have big houses. And what does Solomon do? He goes and builds a big palace, one for his wife and one for himself. Um, you know, it's all there in the kings. Um, you know, and he says, I don't want them to have, uh, collect horses and chariots. And Solomon does all of that, okay? You see how understanding that brings a lot more context to what's going on there, right? So, <laughs> which is what's amazing about the Bible, okay? These are all written by different people, you know, all those different authors, and it all just beautifully ties together. It just amazes me, okay? As I said, I could go on for another hour. Um, yeah, so then um, uh, we come to uh, the northern kings. It's all about, and the southern kings, the northern kings are all about me. The southern kings are us and me combination, right? But over time, the me part wins out. And then Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all about the community, all about the people, right? It's about us. And, you know, we see so many similar situations. You think about this and how do we apply this, right? You think about, about our own, um, you know, interactions in the, in the church. You know, what are we about here? You know, we talk about uh, we all have gifts. We come, we are supposed to serve. We are members of the body, every part doing its bit, right? And very often, you know, when we find these same tendencies, right? When we go from us to me, right? We find a lot of negativity happening. We find a lot of division happening. The same kind of divisions that happen in the, um, among the children of Israel start coming into the church. So you can see how you can relate some of these things, okay? So that's the, that's the uh, historical book. So I hope, I hope that makes a lot of sense. So we're going to move on and talk about the, the instructional books, okay? So there are 22 books here. And the purpose of the instructional books is, um, is you know, they don't advance the story, Okay, uh, like the historical books do, but they amplify the story. Okay, they speak into the history, right? And um, uh, they they encouragement to stay for the people to stay on target when they're on target and when they're going uh, off target and they need correction, uh, you know, they get the correction, right? And the uh, and um, uh, you know. Uh, and it reflects the, and there are two parts, we're going to look at the poetic books, the five poetic books, and then the 17 prophetic books, and then we'll be done. Uh, so the, the poetic books are basically, the poets are reflecting the heart uh, of the people, right? The heart of the people as they interact with God. So as they are in this history, as they are living out the foundational truths, you know, the things, the, the circumstances that they're faced with in life, we find all of that expressed in beautiful you know, poetic language in these poetic books from, from Job to Song of Solomon. Uh, we'll get to that in a second, right? So, so historical, uh, you know, and, 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 uh, and it also shows us um, uh, how they experience this foundational life and sometimes they experience it happily, right? Sometimes they experience it with doubts and questions and so we find all this interaction between the people and God captured in these poetic books. So let's, uh, let's just... Um, so again, I've got boxes, okay, one, two, three, four, five boxes, all right? These are just the five, five poetic books. So let's talk about timeline, all right? So the book of Job uh, is actually the earliest book in the Bible, okay? And uh, it sort of fits in this period of Genesis. When you look at some of the historical narrative in there, uh, it's very early on. Uh, Job was probably a contemporary of uh, some of those patriarchs there. Uh, I don't know exactly which one. You can go study that. Uh, and then, um, you know, so it fits in that time frame. And then all the other ones, they fit, um, Kevin, they fit in, uh, into the, the United Kingdom period, okay? So 
basically in this period, right? For the most part. Now there were some Psalms that were written by Moses and all that, but most of the Psalms were written by David or people. And, and as I mentioned, this, this period here, right? The King's United period was sort of the glory days of Israel, right? And you find coming out of that a lot of this sort of poetic literature, right? That's, that's about, about life. So, um, um, you know, uh, uh, and you can see the, the, the books there, they're all listed there, right? So it's all happening in that period of First and Second Samuel and Kings and First and Second Chronicles. That's the historical time frame, if you want to relate those two, right? So let's just look at each one. So the book of Job, very quickly. Kevin, can you hit the... Yeah. So the theme of Job is enduring faithfully. I'm just going to give you some very high-level themes here, right? So there's three parts, the three-part uh, story, three-part... Um, play I guess you can call it so Job is a faithful man he's blessed by God he goes through a series of tests following um, you know an interaction in heaven between God and Satan and the tests take away everything right they take away uh, his possessions his family his health uh, and there's this bargain between God and Satan the second part we find that uh, Job is interacting with his friends right who come to comfort him they come to comfort him um, but then you know they become critical and they start criticizing him and telling him that it's all his fault uh, and all this thing but Job remains faithful right and I just want to quickly go to um, Job uh, chapter 19 and and this is happening uh, in that um, uh, you know in that second uh, part of the play I suppose if you want to look at it that way um, and uh, in in Job chapter 19 uh, you know, Job is, this is, the, this is where he's sort of at the height of his suffering, okay? He, he's looking at his body and it's like ravaged and it's dug down to the bones and, and you can read uh, the, the preceding verses there. But verse 25 to 27, Job looks at it and he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. In my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. It's an amazing little, little thing that's stuck right in the middle where Job is at the height of his suffering, and he sees a redeemer, right? He talks about a redeemer, and, and this is a, another beautiful glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a redeemer who's going to stand on the earth one day. He came once, and then he's going to come again, and Job is looking forward to that, right? Uh, and remember, this is happening way back here. Right? That makes it even more sick. There's no law, there's no nothing. I mean, you know, nothing written down, right? And Job, even there, God has revealed to him that, that there's a Redeemer coming. And, and that Redeemer is his hope, even as he's going through this suffering, that there is a future hope. And, and, and so, you know, the theme is faithfully. And the third part, you know, Job engages with God, right? And he expresses his frustrations. And then God answers him with a series of questions. And God challenges Job about his perceptions and his understanding of, of God himself and his powers and Job is humbled and Job is humbled and eventually he submits himself to God. He says, I have, I have misspoken. I have spoken foolishly. Okay, I never understood who you really are. Okay, and keep in mind again, that gets more significant when you consider this was very early on. Right, there wasn't all of this revelation there. Okay, so he says, God, you are God. And so there's another sub-theme there is the sovereignty of God. You know, very much like our own spiritual journey, right? How will we deal with difficult times? Um, will we stay with the foundational things? You know, will we stay with that foundational understanding of who God is, foundational understanding of his plans for eternity? Um, what if things don't turn out as we expect? 
Are we going to look beyond circumstances to God's promises and believe in those promises? Those are some of the lessons we can learn from the book of Job. So going ahead, uh, you know, we have, we have all the themes here. So you can see the theme in Psalms. I'll just quickly go through this. Uh, there's 150 poems and it's a heart book. It's a book of the heart, right? And it reflects what's going on in the heart of the people of that time. Uh, it reflects blessing, it reflects pain, it reflects fear, it reflects anguish, uh, it reflects hope. All of the elements that we go through in life, you know, uh, Psalm 23, it's a poem with so much feeling. You know, what does it mean to me that the Lord is my shepherd? It means that he is my provider. It means that he is my security. It means that he is my, my, my safety. Um, and so there's a lot of themes, there's themes about God, about creation, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, there's themes about sin and celebration, there's themes about royal things and prophetic things and confession and, and you know David's psalm in, in, in Psalm 51, you can just see that, you know, I put the, it's about heart and emotion, you know, he says create in me a clean heart, he says against you, you only have I sinned, wash me whiter than, than, than snow, you know, wash me with hyssop and I shall be clean, right? So we see the heart of the people coming up and the key theme is all about worship. You know, every element of life and what this teaches us about worship is that worship is not coming here on a Sunday morning and singing a few songs. Worship is, is, is in the pain of life. Worship is in the happy periods of life. Worship is, is when we are going through need. Worship is, is every element of life. The way we deal with it is to be an act of worship and that's what we see in the Psalms. And then when we come to the Proverbs, it's wisdom literature, right? So Proverbs goes from heart and emotion of Psalms to the mind and the will, right? It's how do we, uh, it's wisdom literature that addresses the ways in which the people can live out the foundational truths, right? We've studied a lot of things in the Proverbs about parenting, about wise and foolish, and we'll have a lesson on that later. Um, so what is the theme there? It's the living skills for life, right? So, so again, you can see how, how these are instructional, right? They're sort of giving instruction to these people on how they are to live their lives in line with the foundational truth. So Ecclesiastes. So here we have an author is writing about his experience in life and in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1 to 3, he talked about there's a time for this and a time for that, a time to cry and a time to laugh and, and, and weep and mourn and, and all of these kind of things, right? Uh, and it presents all the different moods and the opportunities of life and, and here's an author uh, you know, probably Solomon who devotes himself to relationships and he devotes himself to education and to work and to gathering wealth and to pleasure and power and position. And after all of that, what does he declare? Raven did a whole uh, series on this over many months, but I'll summarize it in one minute, okay? Um, what does he declare? Everything is vanity. Vanity means empty. Everything is empty. You know, and that's his, con what's his conclusion in the end? Fear God and keep his commandments, do the foundational things, go back to this, right? And, um, you know, and, you know, we think about our life, you know, we read all that, we study all that, and then what do we pursue after, you know? Do we pursue all of these things? Relationships, education, work, wealth, pleasure, right? Power, position, position, power. This happens even in the church. You know, we want power, we want position, we want to be recognized. Right? But what is Solomon? What does the writer of Ecclesiastes say? It's all vanity. It's emptiness. Right? Humble yourself in the sight of God. So the theme is the 
vanity of life. And then Song of Solomon is all about living in a marriage relationship. Now people try to, Song of Solomon was the book when, you know, when we would have family prayer, uh, you know, so you skip it and move on, okay, because it was a little embarrassing, right? But it's actually a beautiful book. Charlie spoke about it, uh, from it on uh, um, Sam and Sheetal's engagement the other day. Um, you know, uh, so two people who fall in love, they court one another, they get engaged, they get married, um, and they consummate that marriage, right? And it shows the importance of faithfulness and love, foundational things, right? Remember, foundational marriage, one of the first institutions that God ordained. And the theme here is love and marriage, okay? So that's the poetic section. So let's quickly <coughs> go to the, <coughs> the prophetic section, okay? So in the prophetic section, you have 17 books. Don't worry, we'll get through it very fast, okay? This is actually quite, quite easy. Um, so one, two, three, four, five, okay? Five boxes, okay? So you'll get used to the boxes by now. So, so we can divide up just to make sense of these prophets because they're like sort of all over the place, okay? And by the way, uh, prophets were common in those times, okay? Prophets were people who, who uh, pe when we think of prophets, we think of people that are foretelling the future. There was a, that aspect to them, but mostly they were just coming into the culture and they were calling out to the people and confronting them with their violation of these foundational things, okay? That was, that was their, their primary role. As part of that, they did proclaim future judgment. So Israel had many prophets. Many of them didn't actually write a book. Okay, so you had Elijah, Elisha, there's no book of Elijah, um, you know, in scripture. So they had a link to these foundational things, as I said, and they were very unpopular because their message was very unpopular. They were calling people to repent. They were, they were telling people that judgment was going to come. Some of the kings didn't like them, right? And there's all kinds of stories. So you can keep that in mind as you read through, right? So we can divide it into, into these five areas, okay? There's pre-exilic Okay, three class of pre-exilic, that is, so everything goes back to the exile, right, right here, okay, in um, either in 722 or, or 600, uh, so there are some prophets that were before the exile, there were some prophets during the exile, and some prophets after the exile, and it really makes a big difference to understand those books as you study them, if you understand this, okay, this framework, so we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, we have uh, pre uh, 12 prophets who were pre-exilic prophets to, uh, to uh, Israel, two to Israel, seven to Judah, okay, that's nine, and then three to other nations, okay, we'll talk about that. So notice that it was two to Israel and seven to Judah, and I was thinking, well, why is that? Why did God send so many more to Judah, right? Again, go back, right? It was because of the importance of Judah. He wanted Judah to return. Judah was where the, it's almost like God just sort of, you know, just gave Israel to their whims, you know, but he kept going after Judah again and again. Of course, he didn't totally ignore uh, Israel either. He sent two prophets, so you can see the, uh, oops, wrong word. Kevin, can you hit the, yeah. So we see the prophets there, the pre-exilic prophets to Israel, the two of them were Hosea and Amos, and the theme is all about warnings, okay? Yeah, go next, Kevin. So now there's a lot more, seven of them, right? Habakkuk, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, um, Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, uh, Lamentations, which is uh, Jeremiah is the prophet who wrote Lamentations. You know, so in Habakkuk, you know, Habakkuk has to acknowledge this, the sovereignty of God. God tells him he's going to send the Babylonians, right? We had a message on that uh, a few months ago. <coughs> in Isaiah, we see a glimpse of Jesus, the suffering servant, right? In Jeremiah, Jeremiah has to do all this weird stuff. God tells him to live out the prophecies, right? And then 
Joel, Micah, Zephaniah, and then Lamentations, a powerful warning. But amidst that warning, Jeremiah looks past it and he talks about the faithfulness of God, right? That beautiful hymn we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? It comes from, from uh, Lamentations, right? And so, so we have those prophets who are going to Judah and giving them warning, saying, you know, you guys are going to be judged. You need to go back to these things, the foundational things, right? Okay, then we have the other nations. So God reaches out to Edom and Assyria, right? So Edom is Obadiah, one chapter. Okay, and then Jonah and Nahum, they go to Assyria. And it's interesting that God actually goes after these, these nations. He warns them. He gives, uh, remember Jonah. So when we think of Jonah, we just think about Jonah and the, the, the whale, right? As they normally say it. Jonah got eaten by a whale. That's all we know about Jonah. And Jonah was actually a prophet. Why was he trying to run away? Because he didn't want these Assyrians to be saved. And, and we get so many lessons from uh, you know, from Jonah, uh, you know, he eventually does what God wants him to do, but, but he's not very happy about it, okay? Have you ever had that, um, uh, that kind of experience in your life or my life? Um, so Jonah, Nahum, uh, so after Jonah, they repent, right? But then they go back to their old ways and then Nahum comes and then they're destroyed, okay? And Edom is completely destroyed. So all of these prophecies come true. And then you have the exilic prophets who are, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So these, sorry, Ezekiel and Daniel. Okay. So Ezekiel and Daniel are prophesying while these people are in Babylon or in Persia, in exile. Okay. Uh, and we can see the 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 theme there is is endurance and hope, right? So God is giving them. So while they are in in the difficulties of the exile, you know, uh, God is telling them you need to endure, hang in there. Okay. There is hope. There is deliverance coming. And that's why you, and then Daniel, of course, looks much further ahead, right? He looks prophetically ahead to, uh, to the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God. So now it starts sort of making sense. This is written to people in the middle of exile who are living in another kingdom who after 70 years, throughout these 70 years, you know, they've gone through all these experience of being exiles in a, in a foreign land, right? And then finally, the post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and these sort of relate to these books, right? So when you look at these prophets, Okay, you need to also go look at these books to see the interplay there. Okay, so, so Haggai, uh, Zechariah and Malachi are contemporaries with Ezra and Nehemiah and the theme is all about restoration. The theme is about renewal and sustain. If you go read in Ezra, you have this whole situation about where they've gone off and married all these women and, and there's a whole thing about divorce and all that because you know, they're trying to return back to these foundational truths and, and, and the whole situation is such a mess. But in that mess, we learn you know, how does God deal with a mess? How should we as a church deal with a mess? You know, marriage is, um, is, is, is um, you know, is, is very sacred, right? Marriage is supposed to be permanent, but here we have a situation where God has to deal with them and they do something that, that actually says, go ahead and let them divorce, okay? Because when you're in a mess, you know, God being gracious makes certain allowances, right? We won't get into that too much. So, um, you know, and, and in, in these prophets, you see, you know, you look at all of these and, and you can get such a beautiful picture of, of how we deal with struggles in life, right? So even if you're dealing with a fallen Christian, right? When, when somebody's, you know, let's say, let's say somebody's in this and you, you figure that, you know, they're heading to the wrong direction. Take, take the life of a, of a believer in Christ, right? And let's try to relate this very quickly and I'll stop here. Okay, so here we have, you know, uh, when they're going through this period, you're warning them, you're warning them, you're warning them, but then they fall. And they're sort of in this exile period. And what do you have to do? You have to, you have to teach them endurance. You have to encourage them, 
right? You have to tell them about the hope that is in Christ and, and bring about repentance and then bring them back. And what do you do? Restoration, renewal, and to sustain that going forward. What a beautiful picture of discipleship here, right? In the, in the prophets. Um, and all because, you know, when you, when you relate it back to what's going on in history, it makes uh, a lot of things come clear, right? So, so these are, uh, you know, I hope you found this useful. Uh, you know, I think, I think it's exciting as you go through and start delving in and studying. And uh, maybe I'll just close with uh, quickly, oops. Yeah, so this is what we're going to do over the next few weeks. So you can see, you know, our lessons, we're going to deep dive, okay? We're going to go down, if you remember my picture from last time, we're going to go down into the roundabouts, okay? We're going to go in and then come back out, okay? Not very detailed. We can't go to every book and every story. Uh, in, in, in just 50, 58 lessons. So you got some foundational things, you got some historical, and you got instructions. So next week, next two lessons are about creation and God, creation, us. I think Ravent and Jobin are going to teach that. Then we look at the fall, the, the flood. Notice quite a bit of focus on the foundational stuff, right? Then we look a little bit at the history and judges, and um, you know, and then we go into some of the poetic literature and then the prophets as well, right? And then we close out the, New Test the Old Testament, we move into the New Testament. So uh, I hope that you are now prepared to go through, uh, you know, the rest of these, uh, these classes. And, uh, and uh, you know, I'm certainly excited. I think the extent to which you, um, you know, you benefit from it really uh, has to do with, you know, you attending those cell groups, having those discussions, and then doing your own study. Okay, our intent in this is for us to just get to love the Word of God, to have the Word of God burn in our hearts when we study, to have that desire to go in and to delve into the Word of God, because this is, this is what brings about transformation in our lives, right? We can talk about, you know, we always try to deal with problems in our life by doing, uh, you know, by looking for point solutions, okay? By point solutions, I mean, give me a formula. You know, I've got a problem with pornography, but give me a filter or whatever, right? It doesn't solve the problem. It's heart change that solves the problem. And heart change happens when you delve into the Word of God. And that's what we want everybody here to become. It's somebody who enjoys it, who, who, who takes pleasure and delight in it. You know, he delights in the law of the Lord and on it he meditates day and night. Psalm chapter 1. And our prayer is that every one of you, um, you know, brothers and sisters, would be that. Okay, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the power of your word. We want to thank you for giving us this, this big picture, Lord, of, of the beautiful uh, the beautiful scriptures, Lord, that you have gifted to us, Lord, that you have given to us, Lord. What a providence of yours, Lord, that we have this in our hands and we can hold it and we can study it, Lord. Lord, forgive us for not taking it seriously. And I just want to pray for every brother, every sister here in this assembly, Lord, that they would, they would come to love the word of God, Lord, that they would make it a part of their their mission in life, Lord, to delve into it and study it and they would, through these lessons, be able to understand it better and relate it to their own lives, Father. We thank you, Father, for this time. We give you all the glory and the praise and ask all these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.